Well, hello, and welcome to the e-commerce evolution podcast, where we bring you the best of what's new and what's next in e-commerce. I'm your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And our mission with this show is to interview the top merchants, the top marketers, and the experts shaping the e-commerce industry. This episode of the e-commerce evolution podcast is brought to you by Zipify and their flagship app, Zipify Pages. Zipify Pages is an e-commerce sales funnel and landing page builder that seamlessly integrates into your Shopify store. Just start with one of a growing list of templates and then customize and go. These templates are created by my friend and eight-figure e-commerce store owner, Ezra Firestone. Each template is built with proven conversion elements, but also features a simple drag and drop editor. So you can truly make these pages your own, so you can customize and tweak and test and create some awesome landing pages and sales funnels. So check out all the details, sign up for the beta at zipify.com. Today's episode, I'm really excited about. It's an interview with Frederick Valles. Frederick was one of the first 500 employees at Google where he spent 10 years working on AdWords, was part of the original quality score team, and then was a Google AdWords evangelist and helped small businesses all over the country with their AdWords. And today he's the co-founder of Optimizer, an AdWords tool focused on unique data insights, one-click optimizations, and advanced reporting to make working with AdWords easier. And now uh, Frederick is one of the, the favorite guests, one of the top speakers in the paid search and, and AdWords space. And this, I love this, this episode so much because, well, one, I'm, I'm a Google fanboy, and, and then also we run AdWords campaigns, so it's a big part of what we do. But you're, I think you're going to enjoy a few things. One, uh, Frederick and I get into a few of the stories of the early days of Google, which to me is endlessly fascinating. There's even a great story of Frederick and Sergey uh, playing in a group roller hockey game that got ultra competitive, which is interesting. Uh, but we also talk about, you know, what are, what are some of the mistakes that merchants make with AdWords? We talk about Google Shopping and how to make that work. We talk about some of the little known features of AdWords and some of the things that, that you should be doing or that you should have your agency or in-house team running for you. And so I think there's a, something for everybody here. Uh, if you're not digging into the details of AdWords, I still think there'll be plenty here that you can sink your teeth into and use. Uh, but if you're also into AdWords, if you're actually a practitioner and you're managing AdWords campaigns, I think there'll be a few things here for you as well. And so without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Mr. Frederick Valles. So our guest today is Mr. Frederick Valles from Optimizer. And so excited both to have him as a guest and in the topic that we're going to cover today. So, Frederick, welcome. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us. And uh, how's it going? I'm well. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, good. Good. So, Frederick, you were one of the first 500 employees at Google. And I, for one, am a, a bit of a Google nerd. The, uh, the, the books on Google, like in the Plex and a few others, I've, I've consumed uh, a few of them multiple times, which I don't know what that says about me, but I am a bit of a, a Google nerd. I know everybody else out there loves to hear Google stories and, and is, I'm sure, endlessly fascinated in, wow, this is one of the early guys at, at Google. But if you would, just talk a little bit about what that was like, you know, why you joined the, the Google team, what that was like. And I believe you were there for, for 10 years as well, right? So maybe talk a little bit about some of the changes you saw over that, that time. I think that'd be interesting. Yeah. So 
I, it's unfortunate that I didn't go to Google right out of college. It seems like everybody who went to Stanford ended up at Google at some point, right. uh, some sooner, uh, some later. For me, I actually joined another technology company, and this was when uh, the dot-com bubble was bursting. So I took that job, and then that company sort of uh, didn't do too well anymore. So I got laid off in the third round, and uh, I started looking at companies that I would want to work for. And I really liked eBay, and I really liked uh, this up-and-coming company called Google. Um, and initially, I didn't even really get it about Google. Like when people said, Google such an amazing search engine, go and look at that page. And, and so I'd load up the page and then I'd sit there waiting for stuff to load on the page. And, and then I realized, oh, wait, there's just a search box. That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's the concept. And that was so different at the time. Like I initially didn't get it. Yeah, totally different. It was revolutionary. Yeah. And, and then, but then I started seeing the, the search results they produced. And I was like, oh, this is actually quite good. Um, and so I'd actually been active in PPC advertising a bit. All the way back in my uh, my college days, back in 1998, I was doing this on goto.com. And then um, after I'd been laid off, I actually became a wedding photographer for a while just to make ends meet. And one way that I found customers was to place ads on AdWords, which was brand new at the time. Um, and so I, I actually had a good summer as a wedding photographer, but I was like, this is so cool that I can start up a new business and instantly have customers. There's probably something bigger here than just me being a wedding photographer. Um, and so then I ended up working for Google. Uh, it really gave you an interesting perspective then, owning a business, seeing how PPC impacted the, the business in a very tangible way. I'm sure they gave you a pretty pretty fresh perspective and one that was pretty valuable at Google. Well, and I think that's really uh, what set me apart a little bit at Google and what made me eventually become the AdWords evangelist was that I had really hands-on experience with the product. Whereas, uh, you know, on the engineering side, people are usually pretty heads down and, and they know what they're building, but they never actually use it in the real world. So, you know, the theory and the practice are usually very different. Um, and I was bridging that gap in many ways. And so I would be able to go out and speak to an audience and I would know what the shortcomings were of AdWords. And I'd also had found the workarounds to actually make it work the way that people needed it to. Um, and so that, that was a fun position to be in, to go out there and train people and teach people how this all worked, how I had done it, uh, and been somewhat successful with it. And, uh, and so that, that kept me at Google for 10 years. And then your previous question too, was like, how did things change? Well, I joined when it was fewer than 500 people. I left when it was 60,000 people. That's crazy. Um, so, so you can sort of imagine, uh, it went from, we all had lunch in the beginning in Charlie's cafe and Charlie would personally serve you and he would personally yell at you if you took more than two main courses. <laughs> um, it's like, the, like the soup Nazi at Google. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we knew the rules. And so uh, and this is in the books that you read too, I think, but um, he would actually ring a little bell exactly at noon, which was the signal that people could start serving themselves. Uh, but when I had just joined... I didn't know about this balance. So I walk into the cafeteria and everybody's like just standing around and talking. I'm like, sweet, like nobody's paying attention to the food. So let me just go straight up. It's 1157. Let me be the first in line. And oh, no, that was a big no, no for Charlie. So no, no lunch uh, for I, you for one year. Yeah, exactly. Just like, just like a, I learned my lesson. Um, but then the other day he uh, he spilled a bunch of milk in the kitchen. I was like, oh, this is my chance to to make good. So I cleaned it up for him. And and the next day I could have lunch again. Way. strategic I like that I like that so so Frederick talk about what did you use and, and we're gonna get into you know how merchants can can leverage paid search and why it's still such a, a powerful platform in AdWords specifically and 
and kind of what's new and what's changing. We're, we're going to get into all that. But uh, just curious, what what were your roles at, at Google? So what did you actually do and, and how did that kind of evolve? Well, so I was hired specifically because they needed someone who spoke Dutch. And I'm originally from Belgium, so I speak Flemish, which is the same as Dutch. And uh, they needed it because they were going to translate AdWords into, I think it was the sixth language at the time. Um, and so it was quite hard for them to find a Dutch-speaking person who lived in the Bay Area. So that's how I came in. Um, so I was basically on, on the AdWords support team. I had to do the translation of the whole AdWords interface, which created some uh, unique translations, if you will. Something like I, I actually hadn't... I yeah, so I hadn't spoken Dutch actively for over a decade, but then I got to translate all of these key terms in a in an industry that basically didn't exist. So I just made up words. Um, <laughs> that sounds fun, actually. It, it was, it was, and so some of these terms I I read the help documents today, and I'm like, hmm, that's kind of an interesting word choice. But yeah, that's that's my fault. So uh, <laughs> so anyway, that that was my original role. And then so I was supporting the whole Dutch language customer base uh, up until it was about 5,000 customers. So I was literally the person reviewing every single Dutch ad coming into the system, approving or rejecting it, uh, handling all questions that those customers had. But uh, but because I was advertising, the engineering, the product management team were like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like this guy, Fred, he's actually running campaigns and we heard he's actually doing conversion tracking. Um, and this was crazy because there was no conversion tracking in AdWords back in the day. And uh, so they wanted to talk to me. They were like, how did you build it? Uh, why are you using it? How do you make how do you get better results with it? So kind of all the obvious questions that are kind of no brainers at this point. Uh, but back then it was new and they wanted to talk to me. And then I had a search query report that I had built for my own uh, use. Uh, because, because So Broadmatch was kind of cool back then. You could actually buy typos and nobody else would run on those because Broadmatch didn't work that well. So you'd get really cheap traffic that way. So I wanted to know exactly what is it that people are typing in and when am I getting results. So again, that was a thing I built. They wanted to talk to me about it. So I got much more involved on the product side. So you had, you then, had a lot of influence in the in the building of the search query report then. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and so on the search query report, I wasn't that involved, I would say. I was more involved on the conversion tracking and then sort of the biggest projects that people would still recognize today, uh, the AdWords editor. I was on the uh, the team that started that. So it was like five people that built that in the beginning. Uh, so that was one of my things. And then I was involved in the acquisition of Urchin, which today, of course, is known as Google Analytics. Um, so it was a small company out of San Diego. We, we knew that it was really important for people to understand attribution and conversions and kind of go beyond what's happening just inside of AdWords. Um, and Eric Schmidt had that vision and, uh, and my friend Wesley Chain, who was a product manager, really drove that. But, uh, you know, him and me being friends, basically said, hey, Fred, can you help me with this acquisition? Can you make sure they have a, a kick-ass support team and that the operations get integrated into Google? So that was my role on that. That's, uh, but just, yeah, that's I, just fantastic. Every every nerd out there, every online marketing nerd, has you to to thank <laughs> in at least at least some capacity. And and I know you know the the hardcore uh, advertising managers and PPC specialists like like we have here. Uh, you know everybody loves AdWords editor and especially how how it's progressed and evolved over the years. So that that's cool. You were you were that involved in in that project. So. Um, now, what's interesting also, and, and, and just kind of last thing, last, last bit of, of Google, last tidbit before we get into the, the tips and strategies and tactics here, 
Do you have any any good Larry or Sergey stories? Like, did you did you hang out with those guys? Were they still pretty hard to to reach even back when it was, you know, in the four hundreds of in terms of employees? Or no, I mean, they would personally introduce us at TGIF when we got hired, um, and I think they'd already reached a little bit of celebrity status. Right. Uh, I mean, at four five hundred people, so I think people were intimidated by them. Um, but it didn't stop me. So I, I think it stopped a lot of people. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but I actually, even before I was officially hired at Google and while I was still temping, um, and so they had this whole crazy temp to full-time program that was super stressful. So I was in that, um, but I was the only person on that temp team who literally said at four o'clock, like, listen, I'm done with my day. I know I'm supposed to maybe stay until six. But, uh, you know, forget that. I'm just going to put on my hockey gear because I know Larry and Sergey are playing right now. So I'm going to go join uh-huh, the game. Uh-huh. Um, and that, yeah, that was awesome for making connections. Actually, Larry had already stopped playing by that point. I think he had like a bad back or something. Uh, but I ended up playing with Sergey quite a bit. And nice. uh, my, my first interaction with him was that I checked him into a planter box. <laughs> Uh, and the, the guy was wearing a mask, right? And I was like, wait, is this one of the founders? Did, should I have done that? Yeah, yeah. Check yeah. check first and ask questions later. That's always been my philosophy. So there you go. Exactly. And I think Sergey respected that because he's a big-time sports guy. So he's like, yeah, don't, don't he, like – wants, wants some competition. Exactly. Wants, wants you to bring it. Yeah. Exactly. And then with Larry, he actually ended up at a, um, a couple of the parties at my house. I mean, th- this was in the days when I was much younger. Um, but it was crazy too, because actually when Larry turned 30 or no, was it even 30? There was some big birthday party where the whole company was invited. Um, and nowadays if you got invited to Larry's party, we'd all be like, yeah, totally. Let's go like drop everything we're doing. But at the time I was like, yeah, I got other stuff to do. So let's skip that one. Uh, But then he ended up, uh, at my house for a couple of parties and we ended up talking and, uh, he's kind of a nerd too. I mean, he likes these random things. And at one point he was really into air quality. So he'd carry like this big air quality monitoring machine around. Um, and that, that'd be the only thing he wanted to talk about. But if you had, uh, something to say about that topic, then yeah, it'd be a great conversation with him. Interesting. Interesting. Well, truly fascinating. We, we could use the whole podcast to dig in and I would be interested, but I, I know we need to, to <laughs> dig into some, some, uh, tools and tactics and strategies here. So, uh, you know, now Frederick, you run Optimizer, which is an award-winning PPC management software. We'll talk about the details of that later, but you get to look at all kinds of campaigns. You're a speaker, you know, from when the time you were an evangelist uh, for Google and AdWords, you spoke all over the world. You still continue to do that. So you've looked at a ton of campaigns. Let's talk specifically about e-commerce campaigns. So what are two or three of the biggest mistakes you see e-commerce merchants making with AdWords? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the biggest mistakes have to do with the limitations of AdWords. Um, So when it comes to product groups, Google sort of forces a certain structure on you, which sometimes makes it hard to equate that back to how you want to manage your bids. Um, so, So that's one big mistake. And typically what I see advertisers do is they mimic the structure on their website in terms of how they structure the product groups. Um, but probably not enough people break it down to the item ID level, to the SKU level. 
Um, and the reason you don't do that, that a lot of people don't do it is because the data becomes really sparse if you have individual product groups for each product. And if you have sparse data, it's really hard to figure out how to manage your bids better. Um, and so we actually are working on solutions to help with that so that we can say, oh, well, e even though you have 10,000 products, each in an individual group, here's some commonalities between them. So, for example, did you know that all of your red T-shirts convert at twice the rate as your yellow T-shirts, just to name an example? And so even though color is not necessarily part of your product grouping structure, we can tell you something about it and we can give you the ability to act on it. Um, and so advertisers who don't have those capabilities, they may end up with a much um, less defined structure because the way that they get the aggregate data is by grouping things less granularly. Um, and so then also the way that they do bid management is heavily focused on how they've decided to group it. So if they decided to group uh, along the, the brand lines or the lines of the category, while that then forces you to either make a decision based on brand similarities or category similarities, but what if there was another similarity that you hadn't used for your structure that was actually more important? You, you wouldn't even know about that. So that that's one mistake. Yeah, and that's fantastic. Just to to expand on that a little bit, and we're we're huge believers in getting as granular as possible, and and really as much as you can, treating each product like its own business unit, and so seeing the performance of of each product versus other products, and and so we've got some things that we do, but I love the fact that you guys are are pushing and building tools to make that easier and better. Uh, because you know the data is there; it's just a matter of how do you, how do you make it useful and actionable. But yeah, when you can you know move beyond the hey, I'm going to bid, and this is a an, uh, an oversimplification, but I'm going to bid a dollar on all my Nike products. To you know what? No, I'm going to bid uh, uniquely for every single Nike product I have based on mm -hmm. price and conversion rate and return on ad spend for that product. That that's a game changer. And, and really powerful. So, so great. So bidding, I 100% agree with you. That is a mistake. Uh, what, what other mistakes are you seeing? Well, the other big one that we often see is that people don't update their uh, product grouping structure when the data and the merchant feed changes. Um, and, and it's also, I work with a lot of agencies and those agencies or the customer of the agency doesn't realize they need to tell the agency when something significant changes in the product mix because they don't necessarily understand how product groups work. And so to your example about like, say that you're bidding for uh, for Nike products. So maybe you have product groups for all of your different brands. Well, now imagine that that merchant all of a sudden gets a whole new product, a new brand, and they don't tell you about it. Well, by default, that brand's gonna fall under the bucket of everything else where the bids are really generic and so not ideal at all. Um, if that client doesn't tell you, you just don't know to go and make a new product group for it. And you might be running with this uh, this bad bid for several weeks until you notice that there's something happening in the everything else bucket. Maybe the volume goes up dramatically, um, which is actually a good thing because then it tells you to look at it. But in the other case where you have really low bits on everything else, well, that whole new brand of product that's now available may never get any exposure because nobody told you to make a product group for it. So that's the other big mistake I often see. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting. And I think it does go to the, the merchant doesn't really understand, some agencies or, or, or in-house ad managers don't understand. But but yeah, as that as that inventory updates, as as your feed, hopefully your, your feed of all your products updates, 
in Merchant Center, if you're not actively pushing those to the right spots, you know, it's, it's effectively like a, you know, having a retail store and having these new products and with all this potential to sell and you put them on the back shelf or you leave them in the, yeah. in the warehouse and never get them out there visible and, and ready to sell. So, uh, yeah, yeah that's, that's a great, great way to explain it. I like that. Yeah, great. Any, any other uh, final mistakes that you, you see merchants making? No, I think those are sort of the two biggest ones. I, I know there's a whole bunch of mistakes that get made in the feed as well, but we don't really manage that right. quite as closely. Um, so, so I don't have that much insight into it. Um, yeah, that, that totally something makes like, sense. Yeah, something like picking the best image um, and, and just maybe not taking advantage of all the latest promotional feeds and those types of things that can set you back uh, from your competitors. Yeah, and, and what's, what's really interesting, I'll kind of throw this in there and then we'll, we'll move on to the next topic, which is one you're, you're known for and famous for, which is quality scores. So we'll dig into that in a second. But it's also interesting, you know, especially if a merchant sells a product that other retailers sell as well, finding a way to see, you know, are we price competitive? Do we have, like you mentioned, good images? Are we stacking up on that particular product the way we should? And, and you can kind of begin to see that in the data. If you're looking, and that's something that, that I think a lot of merchants miss because they're not digging in, not running reports and things like that. Um, yeah. But let's yeah, actually let, let me ask you a question. So this is another one that I've heard sort of like a, a very specific tip. But if you have more than 10,000 products being targeted, um, I can't remember if it's through a product group or an ad group, but Google limits it and stops looking at additional products. And so I've heard in certain cases where merchants, for some reason, don't get any volume on something they think they should be getting volume on. And then they realize that it's because they've grouped things um, in too, too big of a group and Google just stops looking beyond the 10,000th product. Is that something that you've seen? Yeah, you know what, what we've noticed, and, and I would need to bring in um, Mike, who's our resident uh, shopping specialist on, on some of the detailed stuff like that. But uh, we've seen you, you can put as many as 20,000 unique uh, products at an ID level in an ad group. But in terms of, you know, does Google start becoming blind to some of those products? That's interesting. You know, definitely one thing we're looking at is once we split things out by item ID, really tracking and seeing what's getting impressions or what's not. And then the things that are not getting impressions, then analyzing what needs to be done there. Is, is it a bit issue or is it a feed issue, you know, an optimization yeah. issue? But, uh, but yeah, that would be an interesting one to dig in a little bit deeper on. Is there kind of this blindness, quote unquote, that Google has for products past the 10,000 limit? I know you can't put more than 20,000 in in a given ad group, yeah. and that is definitely a hard limitation. Well, and you and I agree that you should have product groups of one item, uh, ideally, so we don't run into that issue. But if anyone kind of takes the other approach, then that's definitely something yes. to consider, that yes, 10,000 yes. limit. Yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. So uh, let's talk about quality scores. This is another fascinating thing. I'm a huge fan of quality score, and I'll have you explain it in a minute because you were uh, pretty involved, pretty instrumental kind of in the, the beginning of that. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, you know, explain what quality score is, and then I know you were part of a team that worked on that. And so talk about your role there a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, so quality score was this thing that Google sort of invented to make sure that ads remained relevant and would monetize. And so if you think 20 years ago to the days of Yahoo and Punch the Monkey ads and all of the ads online being irrelevant, there was this whole banner blindness and ad blindness. And, and Larry and Sergey, they really didn't want to put ads on the search engine. They thought ads were stupid. 
Uh, but at the same time, like money needed to come from somewhere. Right. So uh, Salar Kamangar, one of the PMs, um, sort of had this vision that, hey, maybe there's something we can do to actually make ads more relevant and more useful. Uh, ads can be information too. And that's Google's mission, right? Organize all the world's information, make it universally accessible and useful. So uh, so when they started thinking about ads as information rather than this disruptive uh, or interruptive thing, uh, it really made Google what it is today. They wouldn't have been around even probably if they hadn't figured out quality score. But so in the, in the very beginning, quality score was literally people like myself who were reviewing ads. We had a button to disapprove a keyword or an ad that literally just said this is disapproved because it's not relevant. But the problem was, who am I to decide um, if a plumber is selling a blue gasket? Uh, I don't know about gaskets and widgets and what have you, and whether that's relevant to the ad that they're running, right? So that was a very subjective assessment that was being made by humans. So Google very quickly realized we need to do something a little bit more sophisticated. And so it evolved into, okay, any keyword that doesn't have a half percent CTR automatically gets disapproved. Um, and it wasn't called quality score at the time. It was just like a relevance thing. Um, and then as the system became more and more sophisticated, it was basically looking at the wisdom of the crowds to let users who were seeing the ads vote with their clicks. And anything that didn't have a high click-through rate would sort of fall lower on the page, the ad rank would go down, and anything that had good CTR would go higher up on the page. Um, and then eventually Google added a couple more things to the, the, the algorithm. And so it became easier to explain what we were doing in terms of calling it quality score rather than CTR and relevance. Um, and yes, I was on that team for about seven years. So uh, I was there when it got renamed to quality score. I was also there when we did some really probably stupid things to quality score. Um, <laughs> like what? Can, can, you, can you dive into that any? Yeah, I mean, so we had a time when we, so, so the biggest frustration was that way back when, when you were dinged for quality score, it was basically a final decision that you could never advertise on that keyword again. Oh, wow. And that didn't always make sense, right? Because Google doesn't always get it right. And, and it wasn't even Google. It was just the users of Google didn't always get it right. So over time, things might become interesting again. Um, and so to have that final determination was just a bad thing. So we said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to give advertisers a quota for how many things that we think are bad, they can actually try to prove to us that it's not bad. Um, and so we had this state of a keyword state called in trial, um, in trial and something like on hold. And so what it was, was, okay, if I had a thousand good keywords, I could have 10% or some other percentage of keywords that could be tried out. Okay. So then I could have say 10 keywords that Google wasn't sure about that I could actually advertise on. And if they got enough data, then they would either move into the bucket of they're okay, they're approved, no problem. Or Google would say, well, look, we, we told you it was going to be bad. It's actually bad. So you can't advertise on those again. And then the next batch of keywords that was waiting to be proven to be either good or bad would come into the mix. Um, so it was this massively complicated system. And the worst part about it was that Google and the system would always pick the lowest impression vol volume keywords to put into the trial phase. So then you'd basically have these 10 keywords 
that took forever to accrue enough impressions to make a decision and they'd be blocking all of these other keywords waiting behind it. Oh, no. And it was, it was so frustrating to advertisers that we said, well, we, we can't do it this way anymore. And so then, then we got to a point where we said, well, listen, Google fundamentally believes that some of these keywords are really, really bad, but if you really, really believe they're not, well, then you can pay a very high price for them. And if by paying that high price and getting the impressions, you actually prove us wrong, well, great, then the price is going to go down, right? You're going to get the benefit of uh, a lower CPC because your quality score has risen. So um, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that, that's it's sort brilliant. of the evolution of that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Talk a little bit about how is quality score calculated now? And I know just like with anything Google related, the algorithm is very complex and there's all kinds of secret stuff that probably only a few people know. But how how uh, talk about quality score in terms that, that anyone can understand um, and then also dive into what's most important to improve your quality score. Because better quality score the lower CPCs you're going to pay, right? And the better your ad rank is going to be. Exactly. And that's sort of the important aspect here is that ad rank equals quality score multiplied by uh, maximum CPC. Uh, and the multiplication is not exactly multiplication anymore, but yes, by and large. So if you increase your quality score, your ad rank will go up uh, or your CPC to maintain the same position may go down. So that's why it's so important. It's a, it's a big financial or economic driver. Um, let's see, what was your question again? The, how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah, how it works and what's, what's most important with quality score. Yeah. Okay. So how it works. I mean, the easiest way to think about quality score is really to understand it's a machine learning system. Um, and so if you think you can actually talk to someone at Google and get the answer about what is going to be the quality score for a certain keyword in a certain auction, auction being a specific search, uh, that's not possible. Nobody knows. It's you think about it like it's a brain that's doing science. A human brain is doing something like neurosurgeons. They kind of know where to cut to achieve certain results in the brain, but nobody knows exactly which neurons um, do do specific things. And quality score, kind of the same thing. It's a machine learning system. So the people who've built a system know what it's supposed to do. We might have guesses about what it is going to do. But at the end of the day, it is learning by itself based on a data set that we fed it. And, and so the way that machine learning then works is, is basically we feed it a big set of data that says, here's the keywords, here's the queries, and here's a whole bunch of other data we had around those queries. And then here's whether somebody clicked or did not click on that ad. Go and try to figure out for all future scenarios what's going to happen. So it builds a learning model. Um, and then, so every time a search now happens, it, the machine predicts, okay, there's a 30% likelihood of getting a click on this ad, 50% on this ad, et cetera, et cetera. So that's basically your predicted CTR metric, which is being calculated in real time for each auction. Um, then Google evaluates after the user is done with their uh, interaction, did the user actually click on the ads the system expected it to click on? And so it updates its own learning uh, based on what just happened. So it's continuously evolving. Um, so, yeah. so, so that that's kind of the easiest way to understand it. Great, great. And then what what can what can merchants then do to drive the quality score? So I know I want to pay lower CPCs. I know I want my, I want my ad to, to rank higher. At least I want to try having it rank higher. What, what can merchants do to drive and improve their quality score? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I would say think back to the, the very early days. Quality score is CTR. Right. It's just CTR measured in many different ways. 
Um, and so when I say it's measured in many different ways, it's the CTR relationship between the query and the keyword, the query and the ad text, um, but also the CTR potential that happens to exist at certain times of the day um, from certain devices, from certain geographies. So, so, so it's basically this whole relevant system is looking at pairs of signals. Um, so, so one good example, of, as if you're a merchant, say that you have a store and your billing address is in the United States, you have a customer who finds your ad, but their billing address is in Germany. Well, Google knows what is the CTR impact of that relationship, you being in the US, them being in Germany, that's probably going to decrease the CTR to some degree. Um, okay, and so they know this for all of the different combinations, and that weighs into the auction. So at one point, we even said, let's look at something like the lunar cycle. Does the lunar cycle impact click-through rate behavior? Um, do you have a guess? Was, to was, what that, was, that your, was that your idea, Frederick? Did you want to yeah, test the lunar cycle? Or was yeah. that like, like, <laughs> no, that was not my idea. Okay. So, uh, uh, I'm guessing, you know, it, it's fascinating that the lunar cycle does have an impact in some cases. I know friends who've worked in the ER and stuff like that, they would swear by, hey, the lunar cycle makes a difference. Yeah. But my, my, I mean, my guess would be no. My guess would be it would, does not have an impact, but. Exactly. So kind of on a global scale uh, for AdWords, it did not have enough of an impact that it was worth keeping around as a signal. I love that but you that's exactly, it though. It's fantastic. Exactly. And that's the point, right? So it's just this, this model where you can put in all of these signals and then the system just learns which signals are important, which ones aren't. Um, and so we found at one point that a very important signal was geographic locations. Um, and their likelihood of clicking on ads from a certain domain and we had a great story there too. We um, so we we put in place this system, and um, people in Bentonville, Arkansas, which happens to be the headquarters of Walmart, yes. um, they would the, the the Walmart team would come into the office in the morning. They would search for their own ads to make sure they were still running, but they would never click on them because they knew they'd have to pay the CPC. <laughs> and uh, and so that town or that city is so small compared to how many people were doing these searches for Walmart that they were actually skewing the numbers. And so Google started seeing people in Bentonville, whenever they see a Walmart ad, eh, they usually don't click on it. So let's just stop showing ads for Walmart. Uh, and you can imagine the next day when the Walmart people came into the office, couldn't find their ads anymore. They thought they were down across the whole country and they they freaked out. Oh, no. uh, yeah. And so, but then when we realized that they had basically, um, without knowing it, but they had gamed the system. We said, well, that's that's not good. We shouldn't be doing something like this that can be gamed. So we actually pulled back that signal. And that was um, also it's, part of the reason for the ad diagnostics and preview tool as well, I would assume. Exactly. And, and that's the other thing people have to keep in mind. So, you know, searching for your own ads or doing the preview. Well, uh, I mean, even the preview tool doesn't look at tons and tons of signals that Google now has access to. Search is very individual at this point, And it's really hard to know um, if what you're seeing is going to be the same that somebody else would see. Right, right. Fascinating stuff and, and super important. Really just shows that, that AdWords is a very complex system, and and so you know you, the the depths are almost uh, unlimited there, and and the layers are, are certainly there uh, as well. Yeah. But uh, on the e-commerce side, um, I would argue that it's actually not quite as sophisticated yet. It will get there, uh, but so one trick that I heard about was that if you change the product ID, the identifier that you have, it actually resets the quality score. For uh, your shopping ads, 
Yeah, I can definitely verify that there's a lot attached to the ID because we've had issues where, um, you know, Google has certain things you can't advertise, you know, banned products and stuff like that. And yeah. Sometimes they'll have false positives. Like we had a dog food company that had some of their bags of dog food disapproved for uh, weapons, and which <laughs> was really bizarre. Uh, so we called Google and tried to get a workaround, and it was kind of being slow. So we actually just went in and uh, changed some of the IDs on those bags of dog food, and presto, got them approved and, and back and running in the, in the system. So, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot attached to the, the ID. It seems like the history is attached to the ID as well. Now, you got me thinking about these dogs and the food. Was it giving them so much gas they would explode or something? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Google's onto something. I don't know. I think yeah. this was like the raw, natural stuff, but I, 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 I don't know. So yeah. it could oh, be. But, uh, well, good. So I love quality score. It's fantastic. I, I do think it's the, the reason Google is what it is today, and I know you've, you've said the same thing. Um, kind of transitioning, and I know this, this, this pivots from quality score, and this is a huge part of where AdWords is going. You know, lots, lots of big changes lately with uh, no right-hand side ads, and then more recently the expanded text ads, which for those that don't know, expanded text ads are now, I think it's about, about 50% bigger than the, the legacy ads. Um, so can you talk about expanded text ads a little bit? Uh, we're all going to have to move that direction very, very quickly. Or depending on when you're listening to this, it may be already forced. But um, what are some of the tips for creating great expanded text ads? Yeah, and so expanded text ads, you're all going to have to switch by the end of January 2017. Um, or that's when you can no longer create legacy ads. Google's already pushed that date back once, so it may happen again. Um, and but what they measured was using all this extra ad space, you now have 140 characters, which is exactly the same as a tweet. You can drive a much better CTR. Um, CTR, like we just talked about, huge factor in quality score. But the reason Google cares about this is, um, and a lot of people don't realize this, but Google is not a CPC ranking system. It's actually based on, a, on cost per impression. Um, if you multiply CTR by CPC, just do the math on a piece of paper, you'll see you come out with CPM uh, right there, right? So Google's very incentivized to have high CTR ads because it basically means more revenue for them. So um, so they made these ads because they drive these much improved CTRs. Now, what was interesting was the case studies they had, fantastic results, but then when people you know, uh, non-case study people started making expanded text ads, the results just weren't that good out of the box. And it kind of spoke to the fact that people have been optimizing legacy ads for many, many years. They've done potentially hundreds of ad text uh, iterations to figure out which ones are the best ones. And you can't really expect new ads just because they have more characters to instantly do better. So you have to hopefully get started very quickly with, with these expanded text ads and do many iterations of testing. There's not one thing that's always going to work best for everyone. Um, now, Optimizer, we did do a case study uh, or, or a piece of research, actually. So we looked at over uh, a billion ads and we said, um, what are some commonalities that we see in terms of what uh, what performs well, what doesn't perform well? Um, and so you can, you can read that case study on search engine land. We've published it there. Uh, but we looked at, for example, the inclusion of different path fields. You now have two fields of path that you can put with the URL. Um, you don't necessarily have to fill all of those out to, to have better performance. We looked at the actual length of each of the lines of text and how important it was to, uh, to fully use that space. And, and so some of the, the main points that we're taking away from this is 
It's about marketing, right? So if you're using that new space smartly to really connect with your customer, you're going to see better results. But if you're just using that extra space to say things that are redundant, repetitive, uh, you're not going to see much better results than before. You might even see worse results. Yeah, I love this so much. My my background is actually in the offline marketing world. So started in radio, did some TV, and, and did some copywriting. Actually, one of my first things I was passionate about was copywriting. Uh, and then before I kind of found my sweet spot in, in search and SEO and paid search. But I, I love that because it makes sense, right? Good good copy is what sells. It's when you're presenting that headline and then descriptor in a way that says, hey, we have what you want. We, we can solve the problem, answer the question, do what it is that you need us to do. So it's not just about you know more words equals more clicks, but more of the right words and more of the right strategy and the right approach. Yes, that does equal more clicks. So I love that the data proved that. Um, which is fantastic, and so, so yeah, we've kind of seen the the same thing on our on our side. Mostly, you know, the expanded text ads work better, better click through rates. Certainly, I love the real estate, I love the flexibility, uh, but yeah, it still goes back to good marketing, right? Uh, yeah. Any any other and thoughts thing, on expanded text ads? Yeah, I mean, one thing that we also looked at was the use of dynamic keyword insertion in the headlines. Uh, between so in legacy ads, that actually worked really well. That would tend to boost the CTR, uh, but we haven't seen that same effect in expanded text ads so um, yeah we, we can't quite explain why that is um, and, and so dki is often kind of a lazy solution to automatically insert the keywords i think if you have the time and especially on high volume ads you probably want to write it out exactly what you wanted to say um, and don't just use dki now actually ad customizers are super powerful and, and almost a much much better solution than DKI. Um, yeah, and let's let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about ad customizers and and I know DKI is is maybe a a cousin or a type of of ad customizer. And, and for those who don't know, dynamic keyword insertion just means that if someone types in a search query uh, and that you know matches a keyword that's in your account, then that keyword will actually become the headline or descriptor for that ad. And, and it can be very powerful, but but I love what you said. It, it can't just be like this lazy thing to make, oh, who needs to write a headline? Let me just use DKI and, and get that done. But uh, talk about ad customizers a little bit, because I think this is something that a lot of people don't know about, or there are at least some customizers that people are not familiar with. But what are ad customizers and what specific ones might you recommend uh, merchants using? Yeah, so ad customizers, they came out probably about two years ago now, I would say. And they, they were basically these spreadsheets of data that you could then tie into your ads. Um, so whereas DKI dynamic keyword insertion just allows you to insert the one keyword that matched uh, that search. With ad customizers, you could insert really any data point from a feed that you have. And it's particularly relevant, I think, to merchants doing e-commerce because you already have spreadsheets full of data. Um, so you could basically show automatically uh, different price points in the ad depending on what product a person searched for. So a uh, simple example, say you had flat screen TVs. Well, actually, every screen nowadays is flat screen. So let's just call them TVs, <laughs> yeah, right? TV. So you're selling TVs and you got the 42-inch model and you got the 50-inch model and the 55-inch model. They're all different prices, but they're basically the same from the same merchant or the same technology. So rather than having to make 
three different ads and three different ad groups to show the correct size and the correct price together, you can pull that data dynamically from your data feed. And depending on what keyword the user searched for, so depending on the size they put in the keyword in the query, the, the, the ad is automatically going to reflect that size and the correct price point. Uh, for people selling flights, you could automatically insert the pair of destination and origin city and the current price for that flight. So those are some of the original capabilities. Now, um, the things that people miss out on is you don't even have to get that sophisticated. You could literally say, I'm going to have a spreadsheet with just one piece of data, which is the promotion I'm currently running. And then I'm going to use that promotion throughout uh, a number of my ads. And I'm using squiggly brackets to insert that data point from my spreadsheet. And now the beauty is when your promotion changes, you don't have to go and change thousands of ads. But instead, you just go to the spreadsheet, you update that once to one field with new promotion, and boom, it's live in all of your ads, plus the ads didn't have to get re-reviewed. Um, so, so there's some real benefits there. Now, all of this was based on spreadsheets. Now, Google has just introduced ad customizers where you don't even have to have a spreadsheet anymore. Um, and they've kind of had it in terms of the countdown functionality. Um, so go to an ad, type in a squiggly bracket, and Google is actually going to show you a drop-down list of what you could insert, and one of them is going to be a countdown. And a countdown is just like how many hours, days, minutes are left until some date, which could be the end of a promotion, the start of a promotion, the end of a contest. All right, yeah, so the, it's just, the, gu the guaranteed ship day, before, you know, to exactly. get it in time for Christmas, things like that. Yeah, exactly. But now they've just added, and I don't think this is in all accounts yet, but it's coming to all accounts the ability to automate to, to, to use this to show different ads depending on the device the user is on and depending on the audience list that someone is on. And so I think audiences are going to be pretty big deal in 2017. So making your marketing uh, more personal because you know who you're speaking to because a user is on a certain audience list that you've defined. Um, and so in the past, all of this would have meant making multiple campaigns, making multiple ad groups for all of these different targeting combinations. But now you can have everything together and the ad itself will know who is the user and what devices that user are on. And depending on that, a different ad text can be shown to them. So it's really powerful stuff to get you to, to really put out that message that's going to resonate with that prospective customer. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I just I love that Google is building this, and and you know, uh, as they layer on more things to search, you know, now you can look at demographic targeting. So you know, we're, we're targeting these keywords, and we want to bid differently if someone is a female and over the age of thirty-five or whatever. You can layer that in. Uh, I love remarketing lists for search ads, which have been around a while, but but I love this part of the uh, customizers because uh, up until this point, you know, you'd have to. If you wanted a different message for people that were on your remarketing list, and so just for anybody that doesn't know, remarketing list for search ads, that's uh, if someone who has been to your site or they're on a remarketing list of some kind, they make a search on Google for a keyword you're bidding on, you can bid differently uh, for that person. But if you want to have a different message, you used to have a, create a different campaign, right? Create a new exactly. RSA campaign, and that, while it's possible, it's a hassle because then you got pro, you know promos that you have to update on multiple campaigns and when you got a, a lot of products or a large account that multiplies very very quickly and so the next question i have for you and i know this is an area that you are an expert in frederick and, and it's something that i know less about my team uses these but uh, curious to hear from you and excited to have you talk about this with the listeners 
AdWords scripts. So what are what are AdWords scripts and what are a few of your favorites? Yeah, so AdWords scripts are these really cool pieces of JavaScript that you can put into an AdWords account and then they can automate anything you want to be done on a schedule. So uh, very basic scripts have to do with reports that you want to run, say, once a day, once a month. Uh, and maybe you actually want to combine several reports from AdWords. So you want to do some VLOOKUPs and put a pivot table on it. So rather than going through that process every single month, you kind of code it up once in JavaScript. And then from that point forward, it just runs on the schedule that you've defined. So it becomes a pretty big time saver. Um, reports can, or sorry, these scripts can also be used to do stuff like anomaly detection. So now we're talking about things that need to happen more frequently than once a day. So for example, once an hour, you can have a script that automatically looks at your accounts and says, are the number of clicks right now kind of normal or does there seem to be some sort of an anomaly? Uh, and that's just the kind of stuff that we know we, we all would like to do it as humans, but we just can't, right? We can't look at every account once an hour. Uh, we do need to get some sleep at some point. And these scripts, these automations, you can code them to do whatever you need them to. Um, and so they're very helpful in that way. Great. Any any particular scripts that are that are kind of a favorite for you or for your team or some some interesting ones you've seen? Yeah, for us, um, two scripts that started out relatively basic and have now evolved into like these uh, really cool scripts with big UIs and, and very uh, lots of settings. Uh, one of them is creating ads from a spreadsheet. So again, very relevant to I think e-commerce. Uh, clients, when they have a spreadsheet of all the data, we can turn that into a set of ad groups, keywords, and ad texts and manage that based on inventory. So if a product goes out of stock, we can automatically pause the associated ad group. If you sell some new products, we'll automatically generate the corresponding ad group, ad text, and keywords based on the template that you've defined. Uh, car dealers, they love this because used cars go in and out of inventory constantly. It's a really easy way for them to just tell their uh, uh, their managers basically go to a spreadsheet, a Google spreadsheet, put in whatever inventory you have, and then the, the AdWords portion will be taken care of automatically. So that's one. And this other uh, really cool thing that we're doing with scripts is bidding. So bidding rules and bidding logic. Uh, there's a lot of black box bid management systems out there. We don't really believe in them because we think um, as a good agency or a strong account manager, you should know something about your business that the computer is just not going to be able to figure out that easily. Um, it's not a cookie cutter solution. And here now you can actually take your bidding logic, your bidding methodology, tell us how that normally goes. And then from that point, it can be automated. Um, so a really classic example is find me keywords that have twice as many clicks as you would normally expect for a conversion to happen, and they still don't have conversions. Um, you know, if you were to do that in AdWords, it's, it's kind of hard because you have to look at what is my campaign level clicks per, uh, per conversion that I normally expect, and now you have to go to a separate report to look at the keyword level data. Um, and so it becomes this 15-minute, 30-minute process, but here you can code it up once, and now you can run that methodology once a day by itself. Yeah, it's, that's fantastic. I want to shift gears a little bit because we're, we're getting close on time. And I want to talk about every marketer's favorite topic. Uh, actually, the, the bane of the existence of most marketers or the, the area that gives us the most headaches and, and issues. And that's attribution. You know, So how do we attribute conversions and success to the appropriate traffic source, the appropriate campaign, the appropriate ad? 
you know, do we use first click or last click or time decay or, or linear or, or some variation? And, and I think for the most part, most people that, that we work with and talk to, you know, we're kind of stuck in this last click attribution world. And, and, and what that means for those that are not familiar with the terminology is, you know, last click, whatever traffic source delivered the final click just before purchase that gets all the credit for the conversion, regardless of if there were, you know, 10 or seven other, you know, steps along the, the conversion path. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, Frederick, I know you, you've done a lot of research here. You've got, got some insight. How do you approach attribution? Uh, so we'll just start there. How do you approach attribution? What do you recommend? Yeah, so, I mean, I think you said last click, everybody's stuck in that. And for some people, that may actually be okay. So I think the first question is to figure out how much action comes across different channels, across different devices. And if that happens to be a large portion, then it's probably more important to have a little bit more thinking around attribution. And so the easiest way to figure that out is to go to the multi-channel funnel report in Google Analytics. It's basically overlapping circles. And if you see there's a tremendous amount of overlap between the different circles, each representing a different channel, then you know that for a typical conversion, all of these different touch points happen. So it's really important to figure out how much of it is due to Facebook, how much of it is due to AdWords and all of these other channels. Um, if you see your circles don't overlap that much, then yeah, you should probably still think about it at some point, but it's not quite as critical uh, because channels do kind of operate more independently from one another. So, so actually the first step for me is always make sure you're running Google Analytics because that's gonna help answer questions that look outside of just one of the engines, uh, whether it be AdWords, Bing Ads, or Facebook. Um, also important to understand is that Google Analytics and AdWords, they, they both have attribution um, modeling reports, but they fundamentally answer different questions. So within the AdWords attribution, it's answering the question of which keywords that were searched eventually help to lead to a conversion. But all of those are within the AdWords realm. Um, if you go to Google Analytics, now you can answer broader questions like between the different channels and, and, and between Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and AdWords, what really happened. Um, and that's sort of one half of the equation, right? Is so have a good measurement system in place. And then I think the other, the next step is about understanding conversions. Uh, because ultimately attribution is about valuing those actions that lead to conversions. So you need to have a full understanding of what a conversion means for you. And then hopefully that's not just the actual transaction, but it's also the lifetime value that that interaction has potentially created. So will that customer become a repeat customer? Will they tell their friends through social media? And will that help bring new business? Um, are there other things, are they going to walk into your physical store location and buy something there? Uh, so that's the other half of the equation. And then the third half part of that equation, um, yeah, and I said half, so it's thirds of the equation. So the last part of the equation is really then how do you value each of these components? And that's where it's last click, first click, uh, all of these different models, U-shaped models. Honestly, I think the data-driven model which is relatively new, and it takes quite a bit of data before it's available, but that's really the best one because it is so granular and it can actually start to understand for each um, different funnel or each different sequence of steps and, and touch points that you had, what was the contribution of each of those touch points. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. Can you explain that a little bit? And I know we we could potentially get a little too granular in our discussion about it as well. But but data driven, what does that look like, and 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 kind of who is that applicable for? Yeah, maybe we can do a whole different uh, podcast on just <laughs> yeah. this topic. Yeah, it sounds good. But, but really, I mean, the simple example is say that someone is going to, and let's stay within the realm of AdWords because it simplifies it a bit, but say that someone was going to search for uh, a 50-inch TV. Okay, so maybe the first thing they search for is LCD TVs, and then the next thing they search for is Samsung 50-inch LCD. Um between those two searches, Google knows what's the likelihood of the conversion happening because you're doing conversion tracking, hopefully. Uh, on the other hand, there may be another type of search where there's even one more search happening at the very beginning, which is like best TVs. And then they end up doing those other two searches. So in data-driven, Google can actually figure out for that one additional search that happened at that position in uh, the progression what is the change to the ultimate conversion rate? So does doing that one additional search have a 50% impact on what will eventually be the conversion rate? And so now they can start to value almost every single interaction uh, very specifically. And it's interesting to me because it's kind of, if you think about it, some people are likely to already be familiar with a brand, um, so you know, looking at a brand search versus a non-brand search early in the funnel, I think it really, how valuable that is depends on who the customer is, right? And so you can start building some custom models yourselves where you say, well, okay, if the first thing was a brand search, but we know that that customer has been to our website six times in the last month, that's probably a very different interaction than someone who does a brand search, but who's never been to your website in the past 30 days. Um, and so that data-driven model really starts to hone in on those very specific questions where the same thing can actually be very different in different situations, um, which most of the other models don't really account for. And so they tend to be a bit of a blunt tool to, to get some better answer, but it's not it's not a very specific answer. Yeah, and, and that makes sense because, you know, you look at if you take a, an individual customer's path to conversion, those paths do look pretty different and and you're right doing certain types of searches and different sequences can have different results or, or mean different things and so i think it does make sense to begin to, to dig in at that level and uh you're right i think that does sound like a a complete topic for another uh podcast but uh this has been fantastic stuff we are kind of getting close on time so what i'd love to do is let's transition a bit and talk about optimizer uh your company optimizer it's an award-winning PPC management tool. I've used the tool myself. It's fantastic. I've compared it with some other things on the market. I'm a, I'm a big fan of what you've put together. And so, so if you would kind of talk about, you know, why you started it and then just a little bit about what Optimizer does. Yeah. So, uh, well, thank you for all of that. Those kind words. I think that's uh, the best plug we could get. But uh, when I left Google, I decided that the easiest way for me to make some money while I figured out what to do next would be to manage some PPC accounts. And I very quickly find myself spending all day talking to customers. And, and at the end of the day, I didn't have time to actually go and do the work that I knew I should be doing, the optimizations I knew I should be doing. So I started looking at tools and I found that they were either too expensive uh, and oftentimes they really didn't do a lot of work. They were much more about cross-channel management, but, but they wouldn't actually make my AdWords account better. 
So that's when I started using scripts. I built some automations to be to, to enable myself to scale my my operation as a consultant. And then met my co-founders and uh, we decided to build a tool. And so nowadays that's Optimizer. It, it uses the API, it uses scripts. It's a full-fledged UI. So we have all different types of optimizations that we really streamline. And so for, for us, the real goal is to take the things that PPC experts should be doing on a frequent basis and streamlining those. And, uh, and the reason we can do this is that AdWords, their interface is built for millions of customers uh, from the very smallest to the very biggest. Uh, and so very specific methodologies like single keyword ad groups, they're not very well supported inside of AdWords itself, but we know it's a popular way to manage accounts. So we support that through one of our tools. So we streamline those types of things. Yeah, it's just fantastic. And, and I know you guys do a free trial so someone can check it out. You don't even have to enter a credit card if I remember correctly. And so exactly. if someone's wanting to check that out further, either put it through the, through its paces or uh, set up a demo, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, just come to our homepage. Uh, probably the hardest part is spelling it correctly. So <laughs> Correct, yes. it's uh, O-P-T-M as in Mary Y-Z-R. A lot of people put in the extra E between the Z and the R. There is no E. Um, I don't think that domain was available, so it's just optimizer.com. Or do a search for it, and uh, you'll find us on Google. But then, yeah, sign up for that free trial. Um, you'll get an invitation for a one-on-one -on -one demo with me or someone else on my team, and we'll show you exactly what the tool can do. Yep, highly recommend it. And I will link to your site in the show notes, so if you... Uh, have trouble with that spelling or don't want to Google it, which you could, uh, click on the links in the show notes, which would be great. And then, Frederick, if someone just wants to follow you and they say, man, this is a super smart guy, I want to see what he's saying and what he's up to, uh, can they follow you on Twitter? Where do you regularly blog? How, how can someone kind of keep tabs on you? Yeah, follow me on Twitter. I'm Silicon Valles. Um, so that's a play on my last name, of, of course. So Silicon and then V-A-L-L-A-E-Y-S. And I also blog regularly once a month for search engine land in the PPC section. So uh, I've done that for a couple of years. So you can read a lot of my old stuff and see what I think about PPC account management. And then I try to also cover some of the new stuff that uh, AdWords comes out with on a regular basis. Yep, fantastic. Well, that is going to do it for time. Frederick, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I trust our, our listeners have as well. So thank you. And we'll all have to have you back again sometime. Yeah, my pleasure. This was fun. Thanks, okay. Brett. Thanks, Very everyone, good. for listening. Yep. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. As always, uh, let us know what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to see less of. Give us a review in iTunes. Uh, we greatly appreciate that. And until next time, keep growing. At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com 
and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.